0: right now. If it's a casual day and you're just lounging around your house or walking the streets, just curious if your clothes carry a gap or an Old Navy label, or for that matter just about any label you might have on any piece of clothing, because that clothing was made inevitably with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. This is Jonathan Tosini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for November 1st, 2017. In April 2013, there was a mass murder of 1,138, I want to say that again, 1,138 garment workers at the Rana Plaza factory in Bangladesh. That was the biggest toll of workers being killed ever, in a manufacturing accident in the history of humanity. I use the word murder because the collapse of the eight story building that housed sweatshop garment factories wasn't some astonishing surprise. It happened because international garment companies like Benetton, Primark, Madeline and Mango exploited people for huge profits not caring a damn about their conditions and slave-like conditions halfway around the globe. Those companies happily pocketed billions of dollars in profits and signed deals year after year with sleazy contractors who operated basically unsafe, dangerous factories because they did not care about the workers there. Now, after a huge outcry following the collapse, and you may remember it was quite well covered in even the traditional press, an accord was signed between labor rights advocates, international union representatives, and NGOs on the one hand, and garment companies on the other hand. And that accord called for payments by the companies to upgrade safety and set up a monitoring scheme to try to prevent future Rana Plaza-like mass murders. And so I want to go back again that this happened on April 24th, 2013. Rana Plaza collapsed, and it killed, as I said, 1,138 workers, and it injured more than 2,400 others. And The injuries and obviously the deaths of the workers left thousands of families devastated, not just by the loss of their loved ones, which is obviously very significant, but also the loss of income that basically kept people barely alive. They were not making a lot of money, so when they had a family member who tragically was either killed or so badly injured they couldn't come back to work, that affected the family income. By the way, 291 of the dead were buried in a mass grave because they could not be identified. They were so, their bodies were so mutilated. Now, one other fact that's really important in this whole story is that workers had seen cracks in the building the day before the collapse. And then I want to quote now from a report that was put out by the Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights about what the workers saw. Now I'm quoting... On Wednesday morning, April 24, 2013, at 8 a.m., 3639 workers refused to enter the 8-story Rana Plaza factory building because there were large and dangerous cracks in the factory walls. The owner, Sohel Rana, brought paid gang members to beat the women and men workers, hitting them with sticks to force them to go into the factory. Managers of the five factories housed in Rana Plaza also told the frightened workers that if they did not return to work there would be no money to pay them for the month of April which meant that there would be no food for them and their children They were forced to go into work at 8 a.m. At 8:45 a.m. the electricity went out and the factory's five generators kicked on almost immediately the workers felt the eight-story building begin to move and heard a loud explosion as the building collapsed, pancaking downward, killing 1,137 workers. Eighty percent of the workers were young women, 18, 19, 20 years of age. Their standard shift was 13 to 14 and a half hours, from 8 a.m. to 9 or 10.30 p.m., toiling 90 to 100 hours a week with just two days off a month. Young helpers earned 12 cents an hour, while junior operators took home 22 cents an hour, $10.56 a week, and senior sewers received 24 cents an hour and $12.48 a week. And that was the end of that passage from the report. Now, just recently, I had the chance to revisit this horrific exploitation of workers with two important people in the struggle. And I want to start with an old friend, Christy Hoffman. Christie is the deputy secretary of Uni Global Union, which represents more than 20 million workers, roughly, from over 900 trade unions all around the world. And as part of Christie's role in negotiating global agreements with employers of all kinds, and those agreements secure the rights of workers primarily to organize, she played a central role in negotiating the accord that we're talking about the one in Bangladesh that was put together after the Rana Plaza collapse. As an aside, she's also been endorsed by the UNI leadership to become the general secretary at UNI in 2018. Now, I sat down with Christy at the recent AFL-CIO convention in St. Louis, and you'll hear a little bit of background noise from the convention. We were sitting in the, just outside the main hall. So, Christy, one of the things that you've worked on uh, significantly over the past several years was the accord around the garment industry in Bangladesh in the wake of the Rana Plaza collapse and lots of other fatalities. And maybe the, the way we can start is to give people, first of all, you know, a minute on what the accord covered and how it affected that kind of change.
1: So the Accord is an agreement between the global unions, Uni Global Union and Industrial, and global brands, um, through which the brands agree that they will ensure that their factories are safe in Bangladesh. Um, And we now have 217 global brands that have signed the Accord with about 1,600 factories and and 2.5 million workers in those factories. So it has a very big footprint within Bangladesh, Um, and it's essentially a program which inspects factories, produces a plan for what the factory needs to correct, and then um, requires that the factories get fixed.
0: And the major reason, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that the brands join this accord because it's somewhat voluntary, right, is reputational damage. I mean, the, the risk to them was if they didn't sign up in the wake of this horrendous, horrendous um, occurrence, where a thousand people were killed and God knows how many injured. It was, re- it was reputational damage, am I wrong?
1: well they they wouldn 't say that I mean they they signed it because there was clearly an outcry in the in the world that there something has to be done about this conditions in Bangladesh where it 's the second largest garment producing uh, country in the world um, ter- terrible wages and conditions and inhumane safety conditions and I think Many of them had their own codes of conduct and they had their own auditing programs, so it wasn't as if they, in their mind, they 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 were doing something before the accord. But clearly, the, their efforts were not working; everything else was failing. So. Um, so the Accord emerged out of the ashes of that terrible event in Rana Plaza, but not only Rana Plaza, there had been a number of fires that preceded Rana Plaza, and it was clear that something had to be done, or they would have faced incredible pressure from all kinds of sources. So there was a lot of pressure on them to do something.
0: And the pressure in some way is, one of the things I noticed, not just about in the garment industry, but in the generally the global supply chain, is you've got these big global brands even you can go and look at Apple, for example, and other manufacturers, and then they point the figure and say, well, it's the supplier's problem. It's the suppliers on the ground level. They're the ones responsible. And what you tried to do, I think, in the Accord, was link those things two together, right? That the suppliers and the brands had responsibility, and the Accord, what it tried to do, and you'll tell me where I'm wrong or where it's right, mm-hmm. is to get the brand to accept responsibility and also put money into fixing the factories. Right. The Accord
1: a- is strictly the brands are responsible for yeah. ensuring their conditions in their supplier factories. So the suppliers are not members of the Accord or signatories to the Accord. It's squarely putting the responsibility on the brands to get make sure the factories are fixed. So that's one thing. They have to require that the factories are fixed, and they also have to make sure there's money available. So we've had some disagreements with the brands about what it means to ensure that it's financially feasible to fix the factories, but clearly our original intent here was that there would be, you know, a sharing of the cost of to, to change this industry.
0: And let's go back and, and remind ourselves what the reality was there, that these were horrific conditions. And As you point out, Rana Plaza was the worst, but describe some of the conditions just so my listeners understand what we're talking well, when
1: about. When we did the inspections of the factories, there were 100,000 violations of our um, re- requirements, which are roughly similar to the existing requirements of the Bangladeshi government. So, which are some of those um, violations might include um, locked doors so that people can't escape a building during a factory, no fire exit onto the street, um, you know, uh, structural problems where the building is cracked, maybe potentially giving presenting another risk like Rana Plaza. Um, wiring that was likely to spark a fire, load problems. Um, So the, the fire issues are probably those that receive the most attention because we've seen time and time again workers locked in a building without any means of escape. And these tend to be Um, high-rise buildings, multi-story buildings, um, so and not sort of modern factories that are that are flat. So they tend to be very very risky, Um, they've tended to be very risky situations.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's say a supplier didn't fix their building, their factory, what would happen to them under this accord?
1: Well, under the accord that we have now, if a supplier is behind on its remediation, it's up to the brand to work with them to try to fix to, get, to fix the factory. Eventually, if they refuse uh, time and time again, they get into what's called an escalation process. They get warnings that if they don't do something within 30 days, they'll get up to the next level of escalation, and eventually they get terminated from from uh, being eligible to do business with Accord signatories. Mm -hmm. Now, luckily, we haven't terminated that many factories. We've terminated altogether 73, um, which, um, but nevertheless, it's a a harsh penalty.
0: And what obviously is so um, striking to me, and as a trade unionist, you would uh, have a lot to say about this, is that the truth is that this Accord, the reason you had to negotiate in the way it is, is because of the lack of powerful unions in Bangladesh or the ability to have freedom of association?
1: Well, it's a combination. I mean, the reason we have the accord is that the government was not willing to inspect and factories or impose any regulatory regime uh, for safety and health on its, on its industry. So it's really the failure of the government to step up and do this job. At the same time, um, it's very, very difficult for unions to to exist in Bangladesh or to be organized, and so it's a very low density. It's a very low density industry, and that remains the same. So it's still incredibly anti-union, incredibly hostile environment for unions. So even with the repairs and most in many factories now, almost um, at the point where they're fully remediated, we expect to have 500 factories in the next 60 days that are fully remediated. Um, even with that. Um, Uh, We still don't have unions in most of the factories, so we won't have union health and safety committees. So that always leaves a risk that the problems will come back again or the doors will be locked. So it's... I think the the failure of the government to allow unions is a big part of the problem.
0: Because as you point out that ongoing, there are things that pop up and only the ability of workers to stand up and say, no, you can't put something in this place. You can't lock a door. That's ultimately the, the, the best safety for workers.
1: Yeah. I mean, you have to have a union in the factory in order to have a safe factory. There's no question about that. That said. The court has meant that these buildings have been transformed into mm. safe buildings, and, um, and therefore it's much, you know, we've made a huge amount of progress. We still need to have unions. There's no question about that. The government still needs to change its position and enforce its labor laws and, you know, allow unions to operate, to. Uh, grow in
0: Bangladesh and a great example in a meeting that we were just at when you described all the training that's been done of workers I mean just the simple idea as one of your colleagues pointed out when there's a fire don't stand there and try to put it out get yeah. the hell out of the building I mean that's yeah, a basic I mean,
1: that's one of the things that we've done in the Accord is we have not only an inspectorate so we have a hundreds of inspectors we have 50 trainers we've trained about a million workers on fire safety um, And that's an amazing accomplishment, frankly, face-to-face training, not just turning on a video. and yes, and one of the things has been that the traditional Bangladeshi training of workers is if there's a fire, your job is to put out the fire. And we've tried to reverse that to say if there's a fire, your job is to get out. Um, because historically, the people who have been killed in fires have been the ones who remained in the building or couldn't get out of the building. And many times they remain in the building to put a, try to fight the fire. It's not fighting the fire. It's it's you know getting out of the building.
0: Because their employer told them that, right? They yeah, said, you got to stay how- in and put that damn fire out.
1: Yeah. That's what they're trained to do. Yeah, yeah. And the employers told them that they have to do that, right? So we've we've changed that, and apparently, and I'm not, you know, I I haven't been in the trainings, but our trainers are pretty optimistic that they've shifted the the culture on that particular point. Um, so yes, and the trainings also give people a idea of where can they come if they see that there's a safety and health problem that hasn't been fixed. It's also an, an opportunity for them to get familiar with the accord and to know their rights and to know their rights to refuse safe work. Um, and so the trainings are really a big component of, of what we're doing in Bangladesh.
0: All right, now this accord was supposed to expire uh, in 2018 and you already now have a new framework for an extension of the accord. What's changed and what's gotten better, or frankly, beyond it, what's weaker potentially moving forward? I assume that the the brands, they're not there out of the goodness of their heart, but you've had to kind of hold their feet to the fire in some way.
1: Yeah, initially the brands were not that eager to extend the accord beyond its expiration in 2018. Um, you know, it's been a very demanding process for everybody. They've had to get really engaged with their factories. They spend money to... They pay money to create the, and operate the Accord. But I think we all realized, including the, the leading progressive brands, that we've put a lot of work into building this operation. And if we walked away before the government's ready to take over its responsibilities, it would be a real failure on our part. Um, and all of our work is really not adding up to much if we left until before there was a credible alternative. And there really isn't a credible alternative. So we went through a long negotiating process. The new accord is very similar to the old one. It remains legally binding, that's a key element. Um, The language still stays the same, that employers have to make sure, that brands have to make sure it's financially sustainable to get the remediation done. Um, we've added a few things that the unions have been emphatic that we needed some language to address safety and health, I mean, to address freedom of association. And that was really critical that that be seen not only as a fundamental right for workers, but also as a key element of safety and health. That you have to have a union, um, um, that there should be, workers should feel free to you know to organize and especially around safety issues. Um, so we've added some language on that topic. And um, we've just addressed some of the things in the first accord that didn't work. We negotiated the accord in a very, you know, in a matter of weeks, Mm -hmm. maybe even days. Um, and it was on the heels of a big you know catastrophe and so there was and it was designed thinking that we might have 20 brands that signed we never imagined we would have 200 brands we have 217 brands it's become much bigger operation than what we could have imagined which is fantastic but it meant that some of the things that we put into the original accord were a little bit unwieldy and we were able to fix those so it's Basically, however, um, uh, very similar to the original to the original agreement.
0: And there are brands that people would recognize, right? People that right now are listening. They were brands that people buy stuff from.
1: Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, it remains. Um, of our 48 signatories that we have so far of the new accord, it remains heavily um, European brands, um, but certainly big European brands like um, H&M, Inditex, C&A were in the leadership of. of you know the first signers of this PVH, which is a U.S. brand, has been very much involved from the beginning, working on the steering committee the whole time, on the negotiating committee. So we've had um, we have some very highly recognizable um, brands that are signing the accord, of course.
0: And are you trying to get American brands in? And why are they not part of? They're part of this thing called the alliance, I assume. We
1: remain ever hopeful that some of the American brands will join. We've had some American brands, so I don't want to. People don't. Uh, people can't see that. her face, but she's but, being. Uh, she's she's rolling. I, I'm, no, of course. In fact, we've reached out to two big American brands. I won't mention them already to say this time around. Why, why don't you join us, um, especially some of the brands who you know have progressive policies, but were persuaded to stay with their. Um, with the, the, you know, the American um, brands in the alliance, um, the alliance is not going to continue beyond 2018. So we're hoping that they'll find a home with us. Um, but traditionally, you know, the American companies are not as comfortable have, in having relationships with unions, and this is definitely a labor, uh, you know, a classic agreement between companies and unions. I'm shocked you'd say and that. I'm
0: shocked. That American brands American don't like brands unions. Are
1: not that eager to do that, and they just feel like they just want to stay in the room with other companies. Whereas, you know, the Europeans, they're used to that. This is part of their their um, framework, and. Um, And now many of them would say even publicly that not having a voluntary program, but one where unions are actually holding your feet to the fire has really made all the difference in the accord, has really transformed their commitment to get things done, that it's important to have us at the table. And brands might not want to say that, um, you know, too loudly, but certainly even in public settings, a number of them have said it's really made a difference in terms of their, you know, the pressure they feel to actually get these factory fi- factories fixed.
0: But what? But why would they care? I mean, uh, let's say, why do they want the factories fixed? I'm mean, And I'm being slightly overly cynical about this, that they only care about their bottom line. So they're actually having to invest money in upgrading these factories so people don't die. Does a corporation really care about that? Or have you found... what's There's a reputational risk that they have, obviously.
1: there's a reputational risk and I think that the legal framework of responsibility is really shifting I mean there we live in a world of business and human rights obligations that it's clear businesses have obligations for the human rights of their supply chain um, the human rights of the workers the communities involved in their supply chain so you know a lot of companies are moving along the spectrum of how to recognize that they have this responsibility how to embed it into their own practices Um, and there may be Aren't, there are not enough legal requirements in their home countries that they have um, these so-called due diligence and uh, um, practices about their supply chain. But all every country is moving in that direction. Um, you know, clearly, you had one company that was sued in in uh, Germany for a, a the for the a fire that occurred. So it's. It's definitely a recognition um, that's increasing among all companies, but especially those in consumer goods, especially those with, you know, where all the production is done via a a supply chain that they've got to take a hard look at how those garments are produced. You know it's really it's it's quite well recognized that none of these brands would tolerate child labor in their factories right i mean they've all know this is a this is a public relations nightmare to have kids Mm -hmm. making your h&m shirt and not to say that h&m has any child labor but just to use that as an example so they've taken a really hard line on that i think they're taking a much better line on safety and the next The next issue, from my point of view, is they need to take a really hard line on the freedom of association. And that's where we want to go with this because, you know, that's part of the package. You can't really have a um, a factory where human rights are respected unless the rights of the workers to organize are also respected.
0: Now to get an even closer view of the people and the struggle, I want to turn to a new friend, Nazma Akhtar. Since she was 16, Nazma, a former child laborer herself, has been campaigning for better working conditions in the textile factories of Bangladesh. She is the general secretary of an organization she started, which is called Awaj, which advocates for workers' rights and means voice in Bangla. She is also the president of Somalito Garments Sromic Federation. I hope I got that pronunciation right, which represents 70,000 women garment workers. I caught up with Nazma as well at the AFL-CIO convention. And just before we go to the conversation with Nazma, I do want to point out the reason that Nazma was at the AFL-CIO convention goes to the work that the AFL-CIO has done, especially through the Solidarity Center in trying to support workers' struggles all around the globe. So, what made you get into being a union activist? How did that happen?
2: Uh, well, uh, I started working in the factory when I was 11 years old. Wow! So, that's the difficult part and crucial moment. Being a child, I'm passing and I'm working long, like... 10 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and very low wages, a lot of exploitation.
0: So and what factory did you work in when I you were 11?
2: for the textile factory.
0: The textile factory? Yes. What, what was the name of it? Sorry? What was the name of the factory? Do you remember?
2: Uh, that was the Sams Garments Limited mm-hmm. in Dhaka. Mm-hmm. So my uh, mother also working in the factory. So we are from very poor family, and we need to support it. And I have three brothers, one sister, two grandmother, and my f- mom and dad. So what his earned is not sufficient. So that is why we need to go. And it's really difficult for us. And after that, when I was like 13 or 14, so quite getting become a uh, teenager or well, getting Old.
0: Older. Yeah. (laughs) You're not old at 13 or 14. (laughs) But since
2: I know something, and that time, we are also facing a lot of problem in the other factory, uh, on-time payment, um, working hours, drinking water, maternity issue, job contract. In many cases, we were beaten by the local muscle man, and. Many cases we don't have um, job security, and many abuse, harassment we are facing at the workplace. So it makes us very angry and very difficult for us, and it's very tough to do. So that's make us to do something and join something and unitly and move forward to do something for our rights to ensure.
0: So when you were 11, 12, 13, 14, you remember these experiences of terrible working conditions? Were you harassed by the supervisors as well, being yeah. a young woman also? Yeah,
2: because we were harassed by uh, supervisor and also the top man, uh, other management, too.
0: Uh-huh. Sexually harassed? Was there a lot of sexual harassment in these factories? Because that's what I've read,
2: uh, that that's actually, a common. in... The, most of the supply country, the production country, there is also sexual harassment. But most of the time, they are very much poor. Yeah. They need money. So boss make uh, exploitation... Yes, of course. ...through some advantage or something and make that sex. And it's they cannot open and outspoken these issues.
0: That's often where the... V- women who are vulnerable because they're either poor or they have no other option, yeah. then someone that's in charge can almost force them. Yeah. They may pay them, but they, a woman feels like she can't say no.
2: Yeah, so this is the reality. So,
0: so all of this then led you to become active in, a, in the union and to try to form a union, right? Yeah. And So, how old were you when that started?
2: Uh, I started joining the union when I was fourteen or fifteen. Wow. So, but it's also very difficult and challenging for me. It's a highly politicized union, mm. male dominating. Mm. They are not focusing the workers' interest;ed They are highlighted, and agenda is the polit- yeah the uh, politic uh, politician as their country things and thing. But we are just used and. When we lost our job, our factory was closed down, we were beaten, we had a criminal charges f- against us, but that time nobody was helping us, and we found if, and the factory was closed down for a longer time, and a lot of, Workers we have no money, and my mother also working. I remember because since that time was Bangladesh is very conservative, and when we go somewhere else and talk about the issues, we are protesting, we are demonstrating many things, and the union wo- who su- to support us, they are not doing anything, so we found very difficult and very challenging with them and then I realized if machine is not running, my salary is not coming. If my salary is not coming, I'm not getting proper food, and my family is not happy. And even the society, because we are very conservative and coming from the Muslim, and it was very poor uh, uh, People always uh, neglected, you know, and people can say anything to you when you have no money and when you are poor. And people are thinking when we raising our voice, we are fighting for our rights, we are trying to ensure our good working condition. But that time also people people in my neighbourhood and country, uh, in my community, they are also thinking because I am trying to go early in the morning and late in the evening to talk with our co brother and sister actively. And that time also people thought, I am like a prostitute. I am going to do something. And many cases men also asking me, hey, take this money and come with us. Why you were going so early in the morning, coming in the late? So these are the things also facing being an organizer. I'm not saying I'm the union leader, but I feel more I'm the organizer. So these kind of things also we are facing because it's very tough. And, you know, uh, still all over the world, the women has a lot of challenges, but we have more challenges than the American, European. Oh, for sure, so compared to American, those, European women, at those, least in the workplace, yeah. Yeah, those are the days we are passing, and those are the days we're facing. Still, we are struggling, so then we decided. And also a lot of gender issues, maternity, sexual issues, women health, reproductive health, these are not addressing by the men. So mm. that we are facing a lot of. So then we decided women should organize, women should be active, women should be part of the leadership. Otherwise we cannot change our life. We cannot do anything. We only if we are depending on our brother or man.
0: Did you then organize to run for election in, in the in that union that was male dominated? You said let's let's take it over, let's become part of the
2: uh, we are yeah. organizing more and more women and set up the, our own union ah, because it, we are not I'm going to uh, fighting with the man or something
0: i see so you've set up you've organized your own independent yeah. union
2: so we are the four women also founding the independent union and that's the way we are our journey and still we are trying to work the independently and raise voice whatever we need, whatever we need to do, what is our rights, what is our responsibility, everything. Because we need to be good, good quality of leadership. Mm. So that kind of things we are trying to do.
0: So what was the moment when Rana Plaza happened? Were you? Is that a factory that your union had members in or?
2: Uh, that is the biggest challenge in the Rana Plaza. There is no union. Mm-hmm. And the, before the Rana Plaza, more than 10 years, the government is not allowing any trade union so there are, that is why the rana plaza workers when they doesn't want to, to go in the morning to work mm. the company and politicians say to them if you are not going to work we will not pay your money month of april so you know our workers are getting very low wages they are hunger so they need money so they are not
0: because they were worried. I remember yeah, the story that there, there was a concern about the building because they saw cracks, cracks and things you know. in it. Yes.
2: Yeah, because the workers are very much scared and afraid to go inside because they found this building is cracked, it's not safe, and no, no one wants it to be, make their life disability or handicrafts or die. But this is the capitalism and fundamentalism and the politician power are make this kind of murder. So after that, they will enter the factory and they just work one hour and the electricity has gone. When they started the generator, the vibration cannot also take this building uh, and immediately it was collapse mm-hmm. where the more than 1,000 workers
0: were sk- killed. It's the worst industrial accident manufacturing in the in the world ever. Not just in the garment industry, but in any place in the history in the history of manufacturing. Yeah. And did you arrive there right after it happened? Did you live close enough to the? Oh no,
2: I'm living is uh, more in the city side, mm. but it is quite outside or countryside. So when I heard this incident, and immediately I went there. And I feel very pain, disturbed, and I feel so angry, you know. And there was like, I found all the government people, the manufacturer, the official minister was there. And I said, what happened? Why it's happened? Because you people are not respect. And you people are not care about us. So that is why it's happened. And they have no answer when I'm saying, and I found m- most of my brother and sister who are working in that factory, some of them lost their legs, some of them lost their arms, some have severely injured, some were the dead body. It's really make me.
0: And when you say and brothers the, and sisters, you mean that in the union? Wor- the, 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 the workers. The workers, not you're literally your brothers and sisters. Because they are yeah. not
2: the union member. Yes,
0: okay but i get that in the solidarity sense yeah, lots because of people you you knew maybe people you recognized yeah, some who were of, yes uh, you yeah, knew them yeah
2: many of them are our solidarity member mm. and yes because they are my brother and sister because i uh, i am also garment workers my mother also my uh, cousin so they are my brother and sister
0: so you stood there and you just looked at this horror and you yeah. felt this anger
2: i am so anger and what I can do, I don't know that time. It make me very angry and disappointed. This is the corporate murder, what happened.
0: So, but then there was this action to try to create this accord, which yeah. I think you were involved in, yeah. which, as my listeners know, was an attempt to then bring the brands and the suppliers to some sort of agreement where they would fix the buildings, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, after that, you know, a lot of concentrate and focus on Bangladesh, and then there was accord has been established in 2013. A number of European companies and few of the American are signing this with the Industrial Global Union and UNI. So we are the signatory. So we are trying to ensure the building safety, electronic safety, and fire and building safety. So these are the areas so we are working and most of the factory when we go for the uh, remediation plan or something so they are also, if there is an union factory, so we can also join our union members. So these are the good things and we are trying to improving working country, uh, safety issues mm-hmm. and this is, after that the Bangladesh has a lot of earthquake a lot of fire incident but not damage like that so this is the advantage
0: so that's really what i wanted to ask how has this changed the conditions of the people you know now since rana plaza what has changed because of either the accord or because of the organizing that you've done
2: Uh, both Because uh, when the lot of concentration and also a lot of uh, focus on Bangladesh and people are also trying to put a lot of pressure.
0: That was all around the world because people were horrified by what they saw. Yeah,
2: Yeah. so that time we got the, uh, the, we got that, uh, it's not the privilege, it's not the opportunities because this is the people blood, sacrifice and get the better working condition because otherwise it never will be happen. And then we are uh, s- uh, signing the accord mm. and the accord is trying to be, uh, ensure the safety issues. And in the meantime, we are trying to organize the union and that is make also a lot of change because now Bangladesh has number of union and some of them have good industrial relations, have the signing, the collective bargaining. So these are things that are improving. And also in the meantime, a lot of um, some of the companies also signing the Global Framework Agreement, mm-hmm. so which is industrial global union. So these are the many effort is make little bit change and some of the progress, but still the Bangladeshi workers their wages is very, very low compared to the world. So So
0: that's an important point I want to come back to in a second about the wages. But this is the point before you made is important to stress. The accord is a good thing because it forces them to try to at least fix the structural parts of the building, make them safer. But your point is important. The real important step would be to have a union.
2: Yeah. And the
0: government prevents you from having the most unions still
2: we have uh, we have lot of challenges to organize the union mm-hmm. because still we have Uh, uh, um, job security. We have a lot of uh, abuse and harassment. Also, we have uh, false charges. So this kind of things happen. Even uh, the company trying to demotivate it, the union member has get less advantage, the non-union member get more advantage. Mm. So a lot of things they're trying to, uh, the workers shouldn't join in the union movement. But we are trying to motivate them and convince them, this is the platform. You can negotiation, you can bargaining, and you can getting better life and better workplace.
0: And so on the wages, so we won't forget that, the average wage, explain maybe what it is, but also how much does it help buy enough things for the average worker? Or what does it, if you make an average wage in the garment sector, people you know, can you live on that
2: at the average worker salary is like a um, 80 dollar to 90 dollar um,
0: a month month
2: or maybe 100 dollars okay including overtime something like that but the problem is you know that the garments workers has two family one in themselves another in the countryside even most of the uh, garments workers children are living in the countryside without parents because they need to work. So this money they need to send in the countryside for their family, or either for the children or for the parents, and also they need to survive. So most of the case, the garments workers are malnutrition is a big challenge, they're illness related. All malnutrition type, like a headache, ice problem, weakness, dysentery, diarrhea. Even they don't have much uh, sanitation and drinking water properly, so they are not getting proper food. And these are the big challenges we face, and they have long working hours. They need to give high production and, you know, less food, long working hour, long uh, uh, production and they make very early age to retirement so most of the garment workers their age might be 16 to 35 or 40 not more than that because they cannot work so they
0: can't work because they're they're, too, the physically, they're injured yeah
2: physically yeah. they don't have energy yeah. and they can't do it and all the youth and young especially girls are doing this effort but very after 40 they are all still young but they cannot work
0: because the speed and the intensity, and the, the if you work what you say 11 12
2: hours, hours a
0: day, yeah. and you're only making a hundred dollars a month after a few years, that's exhausting for yeah. people, yeah. So
2: that is make and and they don't have much savings, they don't have nothing, so it's very difficult because they they are they have a lot of contribution for our country, the companies also the multinational and especially also the U.S. American consumer, because they got very good price and good things, but the workers couldn't get the good food even. So
0: ah, you see, this is the exact last question I wanted to talk about. You, hit your, you We were telepathic, tele, telepathy here the American consumer doesn't think about this. In other words, they get all these clothes when they go to all these malls and shopping centers and they're getting all these garments. And then far, far away are the the people who are making the garments, who are making barely enough money and often not enough money to have food, their malnutrition. And so it, it feels like the American consumer in some way is causing this by their demand.
2: Yeah, because you know that uh, I'm not talking only American. Also, yeah. whole entire supply mm. chain in Europe, America, Canada, Australia, everywhere. Because if you see the consumer, the consumer perspective, where we can get the good quality and less price. For cheap. That is yep. that uh, people's mentality, and wherever it's coming, people are not thinking because they are more. Uh, exciting to buy the things and many cases they get buy one get one free or a lot of sale nothing is free in this world somebody has to pay who are they this is the workers unpaid long working hour less food less rest no recreation. So these kind of things. And also the consumer need to be know the responsible uh, where the goods come and how it's work, uh, make. this kind of uh, education and how they have to pay also more to contribute and also the multinational and whole supply chain, the fashion retailer and brand has to be doing the responsible buying and ethical buying practice because nothing is doing there fairly Mm -hmm. and nothing they are doing ethically. So that kind of things make unfair and make poor and poor our female workers. So that we need to be fight and we need to be united and we need to afford whole worldwide because it's not only the Bangladesh problem. There is also big challenges if you uh, if the government workers or any production uh, in the supply chain, different uh, things, if the salary is gone up, they might move one country to another country. Mm-hmm. It's a big right. risk and we don't have much alternate job for the female. So that is why it's an exploitation and they're making profit and profit the multinational.
0: And this is what I assume the suppliers um, tell workers in Bangladesh, look, if you make me raise my wages, I'll go to another country.
2: Yeah, it's happened everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Because people are, you know, before it was uh, garments was in like, Korea, Philippines, Philippines, Philippines yeah, Thailand, Sri and Sri Lanka. After that, is in China. But after that, it's come to Bangladesh, and then it goes to Pakistan. Now it goes to India, Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, everywhere. But so, and now also people are very exciting to go to Ethiopia. So this is the, uh, the game are going all over the world and exploiting the human and workers.
0: we go to our usual robber Baron segment just to wrap up the other day Bernie Sanders was in New York City to campaign for the re-election of mayor Bill de Blasio he spoke at a rally that I went to in New York City and I thought people would want to hear his current thinking so give a listen to this Bernie, Bernie, Bernie,
3: Bernie, Bernie. Thank you thank you all thank you all for thank you for coming out um, Tonight, as some of you know, I was born in a foreign country called Brooklyn. And when the mayor talks about trying to control rent increases, I know about that because my family lived in a three and a half room rent controlled apartment. So mayor, thank you for doing everything that you can to make sure, in these difficult times, that this city remains affordable for working people. That's not easy. As soon as we are finished with this event, I'm gonna get on a Amtrak and head back to Washington. And I wanna tell you that what this election here in New York is about is the understanding that everything that Mayor de Blasio is trying to do is exactly the opposite of what Donald Trump is trying to do. And you should all be very proud of that. Trump, in an extremely un-American, ugly and almost unprecedented way, unprecedented way, is trying to divide us up. Based on the color of our skin or our religion or the country we came from or our sexual orientation. And this mayor is leading the city in a way to bring us together to create a better life for all of us. Now, listen to this, and what, why what Bill said is so important. Right now, the great fear that I have for this great nation is that we are moving rapidly toward an oligarchic form of society. You know what that means, oligarchy? That means a nation not controlled by ordinary people who will have differences of opinion, you'll argue it out one person, one vote, democracy, but this country increasingly is moving toward an oligarchy where a handful of billionaires control not only the economy, but our political life as well. And what we believe is the antidote to billionaire control over our political process is when working people, and young people, and seniors, and people of all colors and religions come together and demand a government, and demand a government, and work for a government that represents all of us, not just the 1%. For 40 years, the middle class of this country whether it's New York City, or my state of Vermont, or any place in America, for 40 years, the middle class has been shrinking. We all know people who are working on one job, but two jobs, three jobs, people can't afford child care, can't afford their rent, can't afford to send their kids to college. Well, what we are saying now is our economy is gonna work for all of us. The 1% has enough. Now it is our time to create lives for our children and our parents. <laughs> now right now, on behalf of the Koch brothers and the billionaire class, <laughs> Donald Trump and the Republican leadership have a budget that will give $1.9 trillion to the top 1% in tax breaks. No tax! I know that people who hear this will say he's exaggerating, he's not telling the truth. They have a provision, listen to this, to repeal the estate tax, which would give up to a $50 billion tax break to the Walton family, the wealthiest family in America. Oh! They want to make massive cuts, trillion dollars in cuts to Medicaid. Oh! 400 billion to Medicare. Oh! Massive cuts to nutrition programs. All of you know, mayor knows, program called the WIC program. You don't know what that program is? Yeah. Women, infant, and children. This is a program in a nation which has a very high infant mortality rate, it's a program that says to low-income pregnant women, we're gonna give you the food, we're gonna give you the nutrition for you and your baby. They wanna cut that program to give tax breaks to billionaires. But Bill has a very different idea. He understands that all across this country and in this city, the infrastructure has serious problems. That every day, people have to get on the subway to get to work, to go visiting, to get a job. And he has the radical idea that maybe the trains should be comfortable, they should run on time. What a radical idea! And maybe we should have a bus system that's reliable as well. And maybe, if you're a low income working people, you should be able to get a significant reduction in your fare. Well, that makes sense to me. And his idea to pay for it, at a time of massive income and wealth inequality, is to tell the 1% they're gonna have to pay a little bit more in taxes. the mayor and the first lady of this city for dealing with an issue that gets very, very little attention, and that is the crisis of early childhood education. You know, there was a time, 50, 60 years ago, Dad went to work, Mom stayed home with the kids. Those days are long, long gone. Mom is out working, and Mom, Single mom or mom and dad want to know that when they're out working that their kid has quality child care. That their child has the intellectual and emotional support. So that when that boy or girl goes to school, they're off to a great start. It is an absolute disgrace in this country. Let me say it boldly, how we treat our children. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major country on earth. And all over this country, working people, Burlington, Vermont, searching for decent quality childcare. Cost $15,000 a year more. Somebody works for me in Washington, D.C. I said, Katie, how much does it cost childcare for your baby?" You know what it costs in Washington? $30,000 a year. Now how the hell can you afford $15,000 or $30,000? when you're making 25000 or $30,000. You can't do it. So Bill de Blasio said that in the year 2017, we have to understand that early childhood education should be part of public education in general. <laughs> and he is absolutely right. And I hope very much that we can lower that age here to three, I hope very much, that as a nation, the day is going to come that every working family in this country will know that their little ones will be able to get a high quality early childhood education without any cost. And just as as an aside, I want to mention that just on Saturday, seems like about three years ago, but just Saturday, I was in Puerto Rico, and you all know that the people in Puerto Rico today are suffering terribly. As of today, just spoke to the head of FEMA, 70% of the people still do not have electricity. Temperature is 80, 90 degrees. You don't have electricity, you don't have a refrigerator, you can't cook your food, you can't keep your medicine cool. It is just that people don't have drinking water, schools are not open. It is a horrible, horrible situation. And when I was there with the mayor of San Juan, what she said is she expressed deep gratitude to the mayor for sending his emergency management team (laughs) to do a great job. The media never talks about it. You don't see any TV shows on it. But I want you all to understand that the country right north of us, I live 50 miles away from the Canadian border in Burlington. Do you know how much it costs to go to a doctor? Who knows?
1: Zero! Zero.
3: And if you have cancer and you need serious therapy and hospitalization, do you know how much it costs? Zero! And when you have a baby, do you know how much it costs? Zero! They have a health care system in Canada, I was there. And the quality of the system is as good or better than our system. They spend 50% per capita of what we spend and guarantee quality health care to every man, woman, and child. And Bill knows, and he's right, and I'm not gonna bring it about tomorrow. But the day is going to come when we're going to take on the insurance industry, we're going to take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry, and we are going to guarantee health care to all of our people as a right and not a good one. 100,000 more workers, raised wages for tens of thousands more, and hundreds of thousands of families moved out of poverty. No small thing. And because of the mayor's leadership, a million people signed up for IDNYC The largest and most successful municipal ID program in the country because New York, under the mayor, will always protect immigrant families. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, the mayor made this point. This election is not only re-electing the mayor, and that is exactly what you have to do with a big vote and with a big turnout. But this election is more than that. And this is something he can't do, First Lady can't do, it's something that you have got to do. And that is, we have got to revitalize American democracy. We have got to take on the billionaire class and tell them that they're not gonna control the future of this country, but we will. We can't do it all. We need people all over the city, all over this country, to stand up for a new vision of what America can and must be. Brothers and sisters, we are not a poor country. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world.
1: I was up in Canada.
3: When you have a baby in Canada, anyone know what happens? How much time you get off? You get a year off to stay home with your baby. They're in the process of making their public universities tuition free. We can do all of those things. We as a nation can lead the world in transforming our energy system and creating millions of jobs moving to solar, to wind for energy efficiency. We can have the best education system in the world from pre-K through graduate school. We can create a criminal justice system which is just. And end the embarrassment of having more people in jail than in any other country on Earth. The only limit to what we can do is our imagination, is our belief in what we can do. What the TV tells you and what the establishment tells you, you can't do anything. Who are you? Maybe you'll vote, maybe you won't vote. You don't have any power, you're nothing. And our job is to tell the billionaire class, we are something. And we are going to create cities and towns and a nation that works for our children, that works for the elderly, that works for working people. We can do it if we have the guts to become involved in the political process, if we have the guts to take on the billionaire class and fight for our children and our parents. The brothers and sisters today let's show the country that by a large vote you like a huge vote let's re-elect bill de blasio and let's show the world what this great city can do thank you all very
0: much and now it's time for our robber barons segment and this week there are a pair of robber barons and they're both named john And they both work for the same company. It's a company called Gilead Sciences. And why are they the robber barons of this week? Just a couple of weeks ago, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, approved a new cancer gene therapy. And that gene therapy, that cancer gene therapy, is designed to treat adults with what's called large B-cell lymphoma which is a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And it's sold under the name Yaskarta. Now, how much do you think a dose, one treatment, one administering of this drug is going to cost? Take a guess, take a guess, take a guess. $373,000 for one treatment. This is the immorality, the outrage, the scandal of the healthcare system in this country where insurance companies and drug companies plunder the American people, reach into their pockets and bankrupt them, and bankrupt them when they're just trying to be healthy, and in this case, when you have cancer, just trying to stay alive. And so John Milligan, who is the CEO of this company, last year his total compensation was $13.9 million. And his sidekick is John Martin, the executive chairman, who last year had a total compensation of $10.4 million. And I'll point out that John Martin at one point served as the CEO of the company. And in 2013, he made $180 million. $158 of that was in stock options. And then in the years after that, he continued to bank millions of dollars as that company continued to try to bankrupt the American people. And so because they want to charge this outrageous sum of $373,000 for one treatment for people who are trying to stay alive, people who have cancer, and at the same time they're pocketing tens of millions of dollars John Martin and John Milligan are the robber barons of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Christy Hoffman of The UNI Global Union and Nazma Akhtar, the incredible organizer on behalf of women's rights and garment workers in Bangladesh. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. As usual, I want to encourage you to become a subscriber to the podcast and on top of that, become a financial supporter so we can bring you the voices of all sorts of people, not just in the U.S., but from all around the world. Voices like Nazma, voices who don't get heard almost anywhere in the media today. Look forward to having you back next week.